Hello, and welcome to episode 84 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Oh, we have a few announcements for you as usual. Um, Want to mention uh, Closure Bridge Denver? That's coming up August 14th and 15th, 2015. Uh, you can find out more about that on the Closure Bridge website at closurebridge.org. I think you've heard us talk a lot about Closure Bridge if you've been on the show or listened to the show, rather. <laughs> um, and uh, you can find out more about that. But briefly, it's an event for absolute beginners um, to get introduced to Closure. Pretty cool stuff. Um, emphasis on bringing those skills to underrepresented members of the community. So you can go to closurebridge.org and find out more. But there will be an event in Denver coming up August 14th and 15th. I want to mention again a thing that I can't pronounce and about which I have been laughed at on Twitter. (laughs) So it's a closure tree, I guess. It's C-L-O-J-U-R-E-T-R-E. Uh, anyway, it's a an event. Um, it's happening in Tampir. I assume that's the correct pronunciation. In Finland, uh, September 11th here in 2015. If you Google for that spelling, C L O J U R T R E 2015, you'll wind up on their website. Um, it's also their URL, so closure.org. They're torturing me, I, I swear. Um, anyway, it looks like a cool event. Um, if you happen to be in or near Finland or can get there in, on September 11th, 2015, uh, check that out. A um, couple newish closure meetup groups or closure related meetup groups, at least, want to mention. Uh, one is Disclosure, which is meeting in Santa Monica. Looks like their next meeting as of this recording is August 11th. Um, you can find them on Meetup. Look for, you know, Disclosure, Meetup, um, Santa Monica, you'll find it. Um, and the other one is in Indianapolis. There's an Indie CLJS where the S is parenthesized. I think that's kind of to emphasize the fact that they are uh, kind of broadly interested in Lispy technologies um, to include Closure and Closure Script, but that's an Indie CLJS. Um, so you can find out more about them. Uh, they're on meetup.com slash IndieCLJS. So check them out. Looks pretty cool. Um, Indianapolis-based. Uh, I think that's it as far as announcements. So why not go ahead and go on to episode 84 of the Cognicast. Okay, well, welcome everybody. Today is Friday, July 17th, 2015, and this is the Cognicast. And we are very pleased today to welcome back uh, one of my favorite guests from our previous episodes, talking, of course, about Matthew Flat. He is a professor, if you haven't heard the other episode, a professor at the University of Utah and a contributor, a significant contributor to the Racket Language. Um, he does lots of interesting things. He told us many, many cool things last time, and we're here to have um, him back and, and talk to him some more. So welcome to the show, Matthew. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me back. Happy uh, to be here. Absolutely our pleasure. I was, I, I was telling you before the show, I was listening to the episode um, 
just this morning, I wanted to review it, and uh, I was like, oh, yeah, that was a really fun conversation. And, and it's funny because you said a bunch of cool things, and I feel like in the year that's gone by, and, and partly because um, of my having attended RacketCon between our conversation last year and now, there's a bunch of things you said. I'm like, oh, yeah, that actually makes even more sense to me after the given what I've understood in the, in the intervening year. So that was really cool. But uh, okay. we'll talk more about RacketCon uh, here, too, I suspect. But um, before we do that, and especially amusing since last time I forgot to ask you our opening question until like halfway through the show, don't want to forget to do that this time. Our listeners, our longtime listeners know that our opening question these days is to ask you to share some experience of art, whatever that means to you. Just uh, we like to talk about uh, art to open the show and kind of make that human connection. So whatever you want to talk about in the context of art, just uh, maybe you can share something with us. Well, my strongest connection to art is through my family. My wife is a violinist in the Utah Symphony, and uh, she's made sure that our kids learned music, and that's been a, a great thing to have around the house. And I especially love that my kids understand music in a way that I never quite got to it. Like, I remember when my son sat down to pick out on the keyboard happy birthday for his mom. When I did that, I would just find the melody, but he just went straight to chords. And, uh, it's clear he has a, uh, you know, a, a deeper understanding of that. And so it's been great for me to have that around and just abs- absorb it. That is super cool. I, I agree. I mean, uh, I kind of picked up music, not that I'm very good at it or anything, but I picked it up in a, in a more serious way later on. And, uh, and uh, my kids are, um, are being exposed to it much earlier on and I know much more. Like we're a bit more dedicated to it than uh, than what happened when I was a kid. But my parents had five kids. I don't fault them at all for <laughs> not being able to follow through on all that. But uh, <laughs> well, my parents exposed me to it. But it's uh, it's interesting to see the difference with a professional in the house. I can imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I, actually, I'm kind of curious to to go down this a little bit because this is something that I've thought about a bunch. So, what instrument are your in, or maybe instruments are your children learning? Yeah, well, exactly. Instruments. Uh, they have to learn violin because that's what my wife plays. Mm-hmm. And you learn piano sort of on the way to violin or to complement it. And um, my daughter, though, has switched over to clarinet as her main instrument. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, my son, you know, figured out that if he picks up more instruments, he gets to spend less time practicing violin. <laughs> so he picked up some French horn and he picked up some trumpet and uh, uh, other things that I can't remember now, but he's kind of settled back into violin for his school orchestra. So this is a question I want to ask you because I've had this conversation with a bunch of my friends and I have my own probably uninformed opinion about it, which is what do you think the best first instrument, if there is one, for kids is? Uh, you know, I'm just going to rely on my wife's expertise here because when she uh, meets very young kids who want to, uh, to play violin, she encourages them to learn some piano first. Hmm. So, so that's a great one to start with. And then uh, violin is a good one to learn early so that it comes more naturally to you as you go. Yeah, I'd be curious to ask you, or, or maybe I'll just have to wait and hopefully someday meet your wife and ask her, but uh, I, I've, I've often thought that there's a case, strong case to be made for both of those instruments. The piano, because, you know, if you look at it, it's kind of got Western music theory, at least, embedded in the instrument, you know what I mean? Like the white yeah. keys are a major scale and all that. But then I think about something like violin, um, or I play a little bit, the cello, and mm-hmm. I think that's also great because... Unlike a piano where as long as it's tuned, you press the key and you get the, the <laughs> note you want, yeah. you really have to learn to hear the note with a stringed instrument, a non-fretted yeah. stringed instrument. The, one amazing thing to me is I watched my kids first learning violin. So I sat through sort of two 
kids worth of beginning intro, beginning le- uh, lessons. And I found out after the second one, I could pick up and play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star um, huh. in, in June and everything. So it was uh, interesting to me that an adult can watch someone learn something like that and then at least get started. Of course, and, uh, two months later, you know, they were way beyond and I didn't really understand what they were talking about in the lessons. But, <laughs> but well, That's very cool. I, I, I was just going to say... Um, Based on my experience with the cello, I don't think it's every adult that would be able to do what you did and pick it up and play it in tune. Uh, certainly, it, I was not able to do that right away. Um, yeah, that's very cool. Well, that's awesome stuff, but I think uh, perhaps we should turn our attention to other matters, lest I lose the opportunity to ask you about some of the really cool things that are going on in your world. And I guess I'll, I'll maybe just start by saying... Hey man, what's what's new in the racket world? There's there's awesome stuff going on all, there all the time. Um, you obviously have not sat still, so is there? I'll just th- throw it to you and leave it to your interpretation of what we should uh, what we should let people know about. All right. Well, in the I'd say in the last year, most of what went into our releases was kind of uh, just kind of grinding through performance and stability and uh, that kind of thing. You know, making sure the builds fit in the the right amount of space and building up a lot of new libraries, refining the package manager, seeing a lot more packages being contributed. You know, TypeRacket has improved a lot and now supports you know the object-oriented you know class-based libraries in Racket. And so some libraries that are based on classes more and more are getting ported over. You know, I can't remember if the last time we talked about switching to uh, undefined um, as an error instead of instead of a special undefined value. That sort of level of detail, a lot of that has gone on. And then the big thing for me personally was that I was on sabbatical, so I got to take on a, a bigger task that I've been hoping to do for the last couple of years, which is to work on a new macro expander to Racket. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. You mentioned this last time, if I recall correctly. Uh, please, uh, please, please go on. It was still a glimmer in my eye at that point, I'm sure. <laughs> it was finally around October and November that I more or less disappeared for a few weeks and, and um, bashed out you know, 3, 7, 12. I lost track how many broken versions of macro expanders um, finding my way through. But uh, we've come up with something that is simpler than the old model, sort of at its core, but sufficiently compatible with existing libraries that we think we can switch over. Uh, and in fact, we did switch over in the development branch just yesterday. So I've spent the last 24 hours or so after that sort of cleaning up the messes that you discover once you push it out to lots of other people. So uh, so, so help me out here. I mean, as a non-racket guy, I'd, I'd love to hear about, you know, take me through what the work you've done is and what it means. All right. So why a new macro expander at all? And it's uh, the the original motivation the short-term motivation is that it was starting to uh, to fray around the edges. Some things were broken, and I, it was too complicated for me to figure out how to fix it. Um, but that that complication was sort of a symptom of a longer-term complexity of macros. If you go read the papers on how hygienic macros are implemented, then there's this mark and rename system, and if you stare at it long enough, you can see how it works. But it's not too intuitive, and it turns out to to be difficult to implement in certain ways when you have you know when you have macros that bend hygiene by transferring some lexical information to another identifier then you have to keep too much history and it's hard to represent that compactly so suffice to say that it's complicated and i think that that has been one of the obstacles to getting hygienic macros in more languages so uh, we set out uh, to have a simpler notion of what scope is 
of what lexical scope means, of what hygiene means for macros, and I think we have succeeded. And uh, the the evidence for that is when I explain it to people, they seem to understand better. And I'll give it a try here in a couple of minutes. And it was easier to implement and performs well and doesn't have the bugs that were starting to uh, to occur with the old macro expander. So we still have to do some more work with it, you know, try it out on more libraries to make sure we're happy with it. But so far, all the signs are good. Cool. So the way it works, uh, the new concept is whenever you have, well, we have to talk about scope generally. So whenever you have a binding construct like let or lambda, then that introduces a new scope. And I'm going to use that word scope now to refer to just a token that represents that scope. So Lambda has a new token. Each Lambda has a new token for its scope. Each let has one. And so any identifier in a program acquires a set of scopes that come from its enclosing lets and Lambdas and other binding forms. And if you don't have any macros, then those sets have a particular shape. It turns out the sets always nest. And so we talk about lexical scope as finding the nearest enclosing binding. Or in the set of scopes terminology, you can say, find the binding with the biggest subset of that identifier's set. So it takes a little bit to think through that and make sure that biggest subset is the right thing. But uh, the, the idea is you want to find the binding that has as much, the most in common with a particular identifier. Uh, the reason we go to this set view, though, is that it works well with macros. Macros pull identifiers in from the side, so to speak, and they end up with scopes that uh, come from their original context, and they acquire new scopes in the expansion context. And uh, this set of scopes idea turns out to work well with macros. You you get hygiene at it, uh, out of it uh, pretty naturally by manipulating scopes, or sets of scopes. And macros that do weird things with scope, like the class system or the unit system, when I say weird, I mean not just what falls out of Lambda, it becomes easier to implement those macros. You're reasoning about these sets instead of reasoning about a history of of you know extra annotations and renames and more renames and more extra annotations and so on. So if you come to Reckitcon, I'll tell you all of that again with more pictures that'll hopefully make it clear. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> I will. I will be there. By the way, you can probably tell that I'm just so immersed in this and and really happy about about the progress and optimistic that it's going to work out. Uh, yeah, well, like you said, there's some some really good. I, I can't claim to totally understand that. Oh, I, I think I sort of see the uh, the outline as it were. But I can tell, you know, you've said a couple things that, uh, you know, it's easier to reason about. And and just hearing you explain it, even though I didn't grasp absolutely everything, I feel like there's only one or one or two more layers left there and not some, as you said, sort of complicated model that needs to be reasoned through. So that, that all sounds, from a layman's perspective at least, all sounds really promising. Great, I hope so, yes. Well, so cool. So this is now just starting to hit hit the, the, I guess, the mainstream of Racket development. Is that correct? That's right. We moved it over to the main repository Excellent. Uh, just yesterday. So uh, snapshots have been available for a while, but you know people are busy and they don't really have time to try it out. Uh, some people were able to check it out, but uh, I expect to find out lots more problems now. So uh, you mentioned a couple of the reasons that you did this. Uh, one was simply to make it, I think, easier to work on the macro system itself, it's easier to understand. Uh, and then I think you mentioned the idea of being able to provide hygiene in more languages. I'm not sure whether you meant that in, this, in the racket sense of uh, languages where 
racket itself as a system for developing languages, if I may be so bold, or if you meant uh, another context there. So oh, that's that's a great question. No, I mean other languages like non-racket languages, Haskell, Rust, are examples of languages that do have some some hygiene or forms of hygienic macros, um, but most languages don't, and I I think that's a shame. Uh, I think that's going to be the next big thing for all languages, and so we need to smooth the path so that language implementers can reasonably add this to their language. So it's really a take-over-the-world kind of thing, not just a take-over-the-racket-world kind of thing. That's awesome. That's I, would, I, I don't know if I'd call it take-over-the-world so much as uh, – <laughs> what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, anthrop oh, – good lord. I'm, I'm, I only got four hours of sleep last night, so you have to excuse me, <laughs> but there's a very uh, generous way of, uh, is the word I'm looking for. <laughs> So I, I'm curious uh, then. Sorry, I, I wanted to say also, in yeah. fact, this was implemented in um, Tim Disney uh, adopted this implementation strategy in his suite JS, even before I finished my prototype. So that was especially cool to see. And, um, uh, you know, he reported that it was much better uh, than the old implementation too. So so oh. if you're using JavaScript, you can already go get it there too. It's a suite JS. Very cool. Very cool. So, so you know, I, I have a language I'm pretty interested in. I actually am interested. I think like of a lot of our listeners, I'm interested in all <laughs> yeah. sorts of languages. And Racket's definitely one of them. But like I said, it's one of the reasons we're having you on the show. But so what I guess, and maybe this is an unfair question. I don't know. You know, you're obviously very busy. I don't know how much time you've had to spend with Clojure. But if you mm-hmm. have anything to say about what it would look like to bring some of those ideas to Clojure? That would help me, since it's a language that I'm very familiar with. Yeah, I think Clojure is another, again, one of those reasons I think hygienic macros, as we have defined them before, have been too complicated. Um, Because what you have in Clojure is an approximation of it that makes a lot of macros work. Um, But when you have macro generating macros and local macros and so on, it doesn't uh, quite hold together as well. So what I'm hoping is we get something that's simpler enough that Communities like Clojure will be be willing to look at it and um, you know maybe improve their macro system if we can get that far. Uh, as we've mentioned on the last show, would not be the first time that we've stolen good ideas from Racket, <laughs> which we're happy about. Very cool. So I guess I wouldn't mind drilling down on that a little bit. So I have probably a uh, only vague notion of, I, I mean, I, so generally I would say I would define hygiene in my naive way as, you know, not stomping on existing identifiers, which I have some mechanisms, as you say, to do in Clojure. Specifically when I'm doing macros, I've got, you know, the way that the back quote works. But I think you have a deeper definition than the one I'm thinking of. So Yeah, I think the the way it works in Clojure is it's a kind of reader read time transformation of what you write down mm-hmm. that generates appropriate generate symbols at the right place and uses more global names in other places to make sure that, um, you know, the first one makes sure that the names that are introduced by the macro don't get captured by a use site, and the other one makes sure that any names that are not uh, binding, um, I think I got that backwards, generating the names makes sure that they don't capture anything at the use site, whereas um, turning some of the names to more global makes sure that they don't get locally bound at the use site. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that works great for macros that expand to expressions and definitions. I think it doesn't work when you have a macro that generates a macro definition hmm. or where you have macros that are locally bound. And, you know, a first reaction to that might be, well, true, but that's too crazy. That's, that's too many levels of indirection. But the way we end up using macros in Racket, these happen quite a bit. 
Um, for example, the class macro needs to change the meaning of a field reference all throughout the body of a class. And the way that works is it defines the field as a macro. So the class macro is generating these local field macros in its expansion. Uh, and there are other cases where there's a couple of levels of, of uh, direction. So uh, macro generating macros, local macros, um, generally they allow macros to communicate um, uh, across layers of, of nesting and, and compose better. And so that's why we're looking for a notion of hygiene that matches your expectation. And I will note that, you know, really formally defining hygiene is still an area of ongoing work. That's why why we want to uh, make that work with these, these um, you know, more nested, higher order kinds of macros. Yeah, okay, that helped a lot. <laughs> I could completely see that your, your class and field example is, uh, makes perfect sense. I mean, that's the obvious case where you don't want to give up this powerful mechanism of abstraction just because it happens to be already used by another macro. Huh, okay. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. It's interesting over the last year, you know, one of the things that I've kind of get a dim understanding of is I think, I think it relates to the idea of macros. Cause you know, so as a community, right, the closure programmers, uh, so we have macros, but we don't really use them a lot. I think, I think certainly not a lot compared to the types of things that are more common in um, in Racket. I, I've I've written lots of non-trivial programs where I don't write any. Um, I certainly mm -hmm. use ones that are already written. But one of the things that's interesting is, and I, I mentioned this last time on the show, is uh, this sort of implicit hierarchy of desirability, uh, data, function, macro, putting mm -hmm. data as the most desirable. And over the last year, I've really found myself starting to understand better the, the trade-offs inherent in that. I mean... To be more clear, there's a lot of times where I'm trying to solve a problem, and I'm like, I know what I'll do. I'll define a DSL where, in this case, what I really mean is, um, you know, some semantics around some uh, data literals, right? Some you know, vector is going to mean this, and a keyword inside that vector is going to mean that, and then I'll essentially write a little interpreter in in Clojure to to deal with that. Uh -huh. And uh, and that's actually great. A lot of the time, there's there's lots of times where that does turn out to be a useful thing, or at least a useful useful in the context that I'm doing it thing. But more and more over the last year, I've been like, you know, the advantages there are not as big as I initially imagined. There's a sense in which I kind of looked at that when I was even more naive than I am now <laughs> and said, oh, the big win there is you've got this thing and it kind of expresses what you're trying to do, right? You look at it and you go, I know what that means. Uh, and that's one of the advantages. Another advantage is that if you happen to want to be able to manipulate those things programmatically, then a data format is nice. Uh -huh. But if you don't care about that second thing, which a lot of times you don't, a lot of times you're just trying to write a program that says, do this, then actually code is a pretty good way of doing that. In other words, mm -hmm. and I know I'm uh, preaching not only to the choir, but probably to the preacher here on this stuff, but... Uh, you know, I looked at it and I go, you know, I'm really not winning at all by by having, say, a vector whose first element indicates an operation and whose remaining elements indicate arguments. There's kind of that's kind of a solved problem, <laughs> right? In a lisp, yeah. especially. So it's been, I was, I, and I don't really have a point here other than to say that the last time we talked, you know, we spoke and I said, oh, data function macro, and you said, ah, I don't know, <laughs> and 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 over the last year, things that you've said and things that other people have said to me have really 
made me start to um to to get a more nuanced view of that of that uh shift. So that's why one of the many reasons that I was interested to have you back on and hear more about Racket because I think there's a sense in which uh, the racket community with its not only the power of its macro system but also the willingness to use it I think that's a big part of it is just is a fascinating place to go if you're interested in that set of trade-offs yeah since we talked about this last year I've been paying more attention also and I think you you characterized it really well there where you said it's a trade-off between do you um, need to process it from the outside do you need a representation as data or uh, or not really and uh, it's really an example of the extensibility problem or the uh, the expression problem, once again. When you have it as a language form, uh, often the reason I want it in a language form is I know it's extensible in a certain way. I can add new features, and I have all of the language management tools like scope and macros and so on that will let me extend it without breaking all of the old things. Um, on the other hand, there are cases where I, I do need to do two different things with that program. Uh, and now I need a data representation of it, or a data representation would have been easier. And that's the, the different direction of extensibility, you know, more operations instead of more kinds of data. Mm-hmm. So that's so that's why I, I like your characterization there. And, uh, well, you know, the expression problem, we'll, we will all keep searching for uh, ever better solutions to that problem. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, that's good stuff. I, I do want to make sure that we um, that we spend some time. Uh, I, I don't want to cut that off, but I, I I'm not uh-huh. sure what else to say about that. Like as you said, it's sort of it, it's sort of you get to this point where you're like, yep, uh, that's <laughs> yeah. that's that's one we haven't solved yet. Yeah, when you get to the expression problem, then that's the end of the conversation. I guess I didn't mean to kill it off so seriously. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> I mean, and certainly if there is an answer, it's not going to come uh, from me. You have a much better chance of of solving that one than I do. But <laughs> but there's another thing that I do want to talk about and make sure we have time uh, to talk about. We still have plenty of time, but uh, I'm excited about um, RacketCon. I went last year, and I found the the event absolutely fantastic. It was so much energy there. It really reminded me a lot of, you know, the the closure community. I think the two communities are very, very similar. There was a lot of really cool stuff and a ton of really, like, high-powered people there. I mean, people doing really good uh, research, but also practitioners. Uh, the fact that it was co-located with uh, Strange Loop um, was really neat. And I, and I believe all of those things are true again this year. And so I I signed myself up and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I wonder if you could kind of talk about, um, you know, we talked a little bit last time before the previous uh, RacketCon about what you were hoping it would be like and talk a little bit about how that turned out and then maybe uh, turn to what you're hoping to see from or what you expect to see from the upcoming one. Absolutely. I agree with you. I had a great time uh, at RacketCon last year. Uh, I think uh, Vincent St. Amour, who was the main organizer, did a fabulous job Mm -hmm. of rounding up the speakers and setting the program. Uh, And he's back this year. So I think he's got us lined up uh, again. So Matthias Falleisen, he'll be uh, uh, the keynote speaker um, talking about the Racket Manifesto, just sort of giving everyone his big picture view. And, uh, you know, it's very much uh, a shared view among racketeers. Uh, myself, Robbie, Shiram, Jay, uh, you know, um, Sam, everyone uh, uh, that's that's behind that. Um, and then we've got a great variety of people talking about a great variety of things. I, I don't know if it's right to just list them. You can go look on the webpage, but, uh, you know, we've got people talking about how to use things that are in Racket. We've got 
people talking about new uh, libraries that they've been working on, new applications. Alexis King says to be determined, but uh, you know, I'd be happy if she talked about her new uh, library for generic persistent data structures. Mm. Um, you know, we were talking about stealing that from Clojure eventually, and I bet Alexis is going to set us up pretty well there. Cool. Uh, uh, I haven't had as much time to look into that as I I should have, but everyone else should go look and start using that. Yeah, and we've um, like you said, it's going to be same sort of setup right after Strange Loop, which since Strange Loop shifted to Friday Saturday means RacketCon is on Sunday. We are planning uh, a gathering on Saturday night before RacketCon for all the attendees, and generally planning planning to make it just a um, you know keep the the kind of content that we had last year, but make the, uh, the the surrounding events a little better. We'll have lunch this time and uh, all of that, uh, uh, bumper stickers at least. We, I think we should get some t-shirts. So we've got uh, some generous sponsors this year that are making a lot more possible. So come on out and, and join us again. I would definitely encourage people to go, I think, for whatever technology you're interested in. If you're at, if you're at Strange Loop or really anywhere near St. Louis, it really was totally worthwhile and would have been so even if the ticket price weren't the like ridiculously low I, I think it's 50 I want to say it's about $50 it's, it's 45 yes 45 so it's well worth your your $45 to, to go but uh, so l I want to turn back to last year though a little bit um, and I don't I'm, I certainly don't want to put you on the spot and ask you to name a favorite or anything like that but if there was anything that stuck out uh, in your mind, uh, maybe it was something surprising or something you just really, one of the things you just really liked, uh, I'd love to hear your take on uh, some of the talks from last year. Oh, yeah, it's uh, dangerous to call individual ones out because I was so happy with the whole thing. Um, but uh, I think anyone who was there or saw Jay McCarthy's video, that was that was really fun where he was uh, you know, doing, uh, using... Gee, I, I'm not even good at putting it into words, but uh, using, missing the right word, what do they call that? Where you generate all the numbers anyway, mapping uh, any sort of integer to a game and then being able to play that game. Mm. Um, and Jay is back with, with more of something like that, with uh, this time uh, sound on the NES. Uh, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Brian Mastenbrook was talking about uh, how they use Racket uh, at Wearable. And, uh, you know, that was about racket in production, what happens when uh, people use it that way and how well did it work out. And, uh, you know, Greg Hendershot was showing everyone how to use uh, racket in Emacs uh, for those handful of people who don't use Dr. Racket. I've heard that there are some Emacs users out there. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was good. And, and really, uh, it was just uh, energetic all the way through. I think I actually might have missed the the one you mentioned with the games. There was an unfortunate l uh, lunch incident. In short, <laughs> I, I would never go, recommend anybody go to the restaurant we went to for lunch, where it took them three hours to service lunch. Anyway, um, uh, well, we're solving that this year by having lunch. There. Yes, I, I I noted that when you said that, I was very happy to hear it because unfortunately, I was the one that recommended that restaurant. We'd been there the previous day, and I think a couple of your attendees wound up missing a few talks because. Uh, because of my uh, poor recommendations, so that's very cool. In the attitude of constant improvement, <laughs> fantastic. Well, anyone who wants to catch up, I believe all the videos are online. Yeah, and people should definitely check those out. The ones that uh, I saw most of them, I just missed a couple, unfortunately, but uh, they were they were great. So people should definitely do that. Um, and and Michael Fogus uh, started us out with uh, 
his his keynote last year, and I think the enduring image from that was the what is the name of that painting that he showed? But it has all the weird creatures, and he was telling us that this is what Wreck It looks like to outsiders. That there's all this variety of stuff, and it's not sure where to start. Well, people are not sure where to start, and people are not sure how to contribute when there's already so much there. And that was an interesting perspective. I don't know if we figured out what to do with that yet, uh, because we kept building more stuff, and uh, but also kept having more contributors. So, uh, yeah. So that's that's interesting, actually. Um, so, because my my take on Racket, having kind of seen it out of the corner of one eye for well, a fair number of years now, I'm, I'm not unfortunately paying close attention, but is that it's actually pretty well positioned to get started with. I mean, you have like a pretty good uh, story for development tools and uh, pretty good attitude around um, and like pretty good docs and uh, a big enough community that it's easy to get questions answered. I understand what the perspective that Fogus was bringing as well, um, because of course, you know, you want to leverage as many people as you can bring and you Mm -hmm. believe, and I think with good reason that you have interesting ideas to offer. Uh, But, uh, but yeah, I, I sort of feel like you're definitely well positioned to, to to bring people in. I mean, your community and my community have some of the same problem, which is there's this sort of we're both lisps, and for some people that's just like okay, there's a big wall you got to climb over, and then once you get over that, then it's like oh okay, well there's a lot here, and the lisp part was actually no big deal. That's actually a pretty common experience when I talk to people about yeah. how they got into closure was, and this was certainly true for me was. Oh yeah, there's going to be all these things like about macros and blah 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 blah, and it's like, well, okay, actually that stuff was no big deal once you start doing it. It's it's there. There were other things, you know, for instance, the change to functional programming for me, a different approach to concurrency, all that stuff. But uh, but yeah, anyway, so uh, I'm not sure again yeah. if I had a point. <laughs> well, Focus's talk was certainly thought provoking, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, you mentioned macros there. I sometimes probably give the wrong impression of Racket that people are writing all sorts of crazy macros all the time in their program. And that's not really true in Racket either. We do leverage macros a lot to build new frameworks, new libraries and languages. But you know, most of the programs I write don't actually have a new macro in them. Um, so that could just be one of those things where it's the differentiating factor. So it's what people know about, but uh, you shouldn't be afraid of it. Yeah, that's an interesting point actually, which um, is the same in uh, enclosure. Which is, I would I would say to anybody, it's like if you're looking at these languages and go, oh, but they've got macros in them. Well, yeah, but primarily the way that macros get, the way you encounter macros is you use them, <laughs> and someone else has already written them, and yeah. so that that's kind of the the power up factor. There is the ability for people that have a problem to solve that calls for them can solve them solve that problem, and then hand it to you packaged up and ready to use. Yep. Uh, so absolutely agree. Yeah, it's tempting to think that we just need to find the right name to, to get it across, like the, the warm and fuzzy language constructor. Um, <laughs> but that, I, I don't know if that ever works. We uh, it just takes time and people eventually come to appreciate it. Uh, I, I've, I've come across, I've started using a, a new analogy of when I explain macros I don't know if this is a good analogy. I'll try it out here again. But when I talk to people about macros and they're just not used to macros and not really interested in macros, um, it reminds me very much of being in 1995 when I would talk to C programmers about closures, which we all take for granted now. 
Um, but it's the same sort of thing. Do you really need closures? They make it more complicated. There's some implementation questions. And, you know, you can't really convince a C programmer that they need closures because it's, it's just something that um, makes your life easier day to day. But you could have always done it a slightly different way. And I think macros are like that too. So maybe again, it's just a matter of time and we don't have to pick a new name and uh, we can just keep improving them so they'll be ready when everyone else is. I think there's there's a very strong chance there's something to know what you're saying. I used to run into exactly the same thing. Um, only for me, it was um, uh, I was teaching .NET um, back when that was becoming a thing. And uh, it was oftentimes to C++ programmers. And the thing that they would balk at uh, pretty much every time was... Uh, automatic memory management. <laughs> mm -hmm. They're like, no, no way, that can't possibly work. <laughs> yep. and, and of course, most of us these days are like, manual memory management? you got to be kidding me. I know. They, people take it so much for granted that those of us who are arguing for it for so many years, it's, uh, I don't know. The, the, uh, that, I guess that's just what happens when things, things work. You don't any... So, as long as we're sort of talking essentially about um, marketing of a language, there's something I wanted to ask you. You, you mentioned that uh, contributors, you've been getting more contributors, even though you're building new things, which is very cool. I, I wonder if you could give me, and, and I'm, I'm hoping for good news here, it sounds like there's good reason to believe, Do you, is there a sense of momentum in the Racket uh, community? Oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's cool. Um, I mean, I spend too much of my time staring at the little core pieces and the stuff around that and that I'm sometimes not the best explainer for all the things that are going on. But um, people can go to you know, packages.racketlang.org and see the list of packages that are there now or the mailing list where all sorts of things are flying around. And of course, RacketCon. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, you, I think you probably felt that from RacketCon last year, that there is a sense of, of momentum. And it's not like uh, an, uh, a crazy growth in the community. You know, we we're still, you know, feels like pretty much the same size that it's been for the past few years, and, and that's fine, but there's a lot of energy and a lot of new active contributors coming in. Yeah, that was definitely the sense I got was, um, you know, here's a viable thing, it has a plan, it has a, a history, uh, yeah, so I definitely got that, I definitely got that sense that it was stable, not in the sense of stagnancy, but in the sense of like, Oh, we're totally here to stay, and uh, and and people were excited about that because it meant that they could like go launch the thing that was solving some problem that they were trying to to solve on it. So I remember like the, there was the one uh, speaker I forget his name who spoke about uh, the quilting software uh, that yeah uh, Daniel he, Prager yeah yeah very cool stuff you know I mean and it's like you wouldn't really think of that necessarily as oh I wonder what an, an interesting use for racket is well writing software that, that plans quilts but. <laughs> It's like, yeah, why not? There's absolutely no reason why not. So that was uh, this sort of thing when you see it, it's like, okay, that's that's a good sign, right? If you can do that, then you can probably do lots and lots and lots of different interesting things. Yep. Cool. So I, I want to talk a bit more about um, the future. Um, so you, we've talked a bit about kind of things that have gone over the last year, a bit about RacketCon. Let's turn back to Racket the Language and, and maybe some of the things that you – See, because you spoke about this, uh, I believe it was you, if I remember, I have a terrible memory, but a, a bit at the last RacketCon, kind of saying, well, here's where we're headed, kind of what we yeah. think things look like. So I wonder if you could speak to that a bit for this audience. Yeah, so we're moving in the right direction. So I think I promised to make a new macro expander. 
So I, <laughs> we can check that one off. But I think I also promised to write that macro expander in Racket instead of in C, and I can't check that one off. Mm. Um, and it's for the reason that I alluded to, or I don't think I alluded to, I think we talked about it and someone asked questions about it, but there's just sort of a dependency of still some C code on the macro expander, so it's hard to just lift it out. Um, but we have a new plan there. So we uh, plan to make pre-racket, and this is um, meant to to um, to be like pre-scheme. If anyone knows about pre-scheme, it was uh, the way Scheme 48 was built. Pre-scheme is a limited variant of scheme, uh, a statically typed variant that's easy to compile to C. So our plan is to write the macro expander in pre-racket, and then it's something that we can just run in Racket, something that we can compile into C also and drop into the middle of the runtime system that way uh, to fit in the dependencies. Uh, and then the plan is to do that to more of the pieces of the runtime system and in the long run, you know, break it down, make the runtime system smaller, gradually raise the level of abstraction that those pieces are written in um, and have a, a more nimble system overall. And we also have some immediate motivation for wanting to move these pieces to a new runtime system because uh, one of the talks this year will be about Picket. Uh, Spencer Bauman will be talking about it. That is a racket implemented on PyPy. Mm. So it's a C Py uh, R Python implementation of racket. And so PyPy then takes that and, and makes it go fast. And you, know, you can see the bench, see the paper. They've got some great benchmark results that show how effective it can be. And you know the the amazing thing about that is when they wrote down the Racket implementation, they didn't try to mimic the current one at all. They wrote what we write in research papers. You know, they wrote just the, the CEKS machine, or the CEK machine at least, I forget. But uh, you know, this is a very high-level description of how evaluation should go, but PyPy makes it go. So that's a potential you know, replacement runtime system in the, in the long run. Sam tells me it's not quite ready to go, you know, not quite ready to drop in place yet. Um, but as we pull out the pieces and restructure, uh, then we expect to, to be able to do more of that kind of thing. So I think I talked about that, talked about some of that last year. So some of the plans are more concrete now. Uh, we haven't made the super rapid progress that I had hoped about pulling pieces apart, but then you never do. Yeah. So, so that would be a replacement. Like this would be a, you would move off of the current implementation and towards this potentially. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure how excited the picket guys are about me saying that they're the new runtime system, but uh, <laughs> uh, but it's an example and a possibility, right? We want to be able to, you know, different runtime systems have strengths. You know, different implementation approaches have different strengths for different uh, domains. And so just having that extra kind of variety in the long run could help solve uh, you know, many different problems. And just overall, I guess the overall and continuing theme there is breaking down Racket, which has been kind of monolithic in the past, into these more composable pieces. One of the things that happened internally in the Racket implementation, um, you know, not the core runtime system itself, but the overall main distribution, is that we split the repository, the Git repository, where it's all developed. So instead of one repository that has everything that's in that main distribution, which is hundreds of packages, or at least a couple of hundred, now they, those are um, maintained in a more distributed way among hundreds of, well, about a hundred or so, I guess, uh, different Git repos. And so that just makes it easier to mix and matches, match the pieces that you want. So it's a long-term program to... 
uh, break these things apart and, and make them more reusable and so all of the pieces can fit in different environments. One of the areas that's seen a lot of uh, growing excitement in the Clojure world over the last uh, few years has been uh, ClojureScript targeting yeah. the, the yeah. JavaScript runtime. Uh, kind of one of our recent guests is a guy named Mike Fikes, and he uh, actually, between the time we recorded it and the time we released, uh, announced some other interesting, interesting maybe only in the sense of a party trick, although it's a pretty awesome party trick, where he got a bootstrapped version of ClojureScript running on uh, native iOS. Anyway, point of point of which is well, to say that's a really there's a lot of excitement there. Like a lot of people are yeah. really excited about the combination of the reach of JavaScript and the power of something like a Lisp. Um, and I think you might even have mentioned the possibility of JavaScript being an important target for Racket. Yes. Is that part of that vision? That's absolutely true. Yes, and uh, there is Whale Song, which is Danny Yu's implementation that can take Racket bytecode and compile it to JavaScript. Uh, in in some cases. The main obstacle there is really all of the all of the um, the primitives that that come with Racket and getting those into a new runtime system. So, hopefully, as we break things down and move those primitives so that they're not primitives, they're just libraries, then uh, it'll enable more of that kind of thing. So, absolutely, we want to be in the JavaScript as a backend space and interoperating with JavaScript as well. So, one of the things that um, Rich has done with Closure Script is to very intentionally uh, make it not the same language. You know what I mean by that? Like, uh, you know, there's not a desire to say, in some sense, you can't tell what platform you're on, right? Like, they're, they're different languages. We do have some support for cross-language modules now, mm-hmm. but there's still, the, the host is still in your face, and that's on purpose. Um, yeah. Is the strategy with Racket to a- adopt that sort of approach or to still have a, you know, more of a VM type uh, setup where you don't know? Well, as usual with Racket and languages, the answer is yes to both. Uh, <laughs> so we will want dialects of Racket that run the same on both of them, but there's certainly uh, advantages to having ones where you know what platform you're on and you take care, take advantage of the platform-specific things. Mm-hmm. And so naturally, we think our language technology and modules and macros and all of that that goes with it uh, will help us do that effectively. Right, okay. And so this this falls out of, when you say languages, you're talking, again, as a bit of a, well, not a bit, a, a racket noob. You're talking about like, you know, the that directive at the beginning of a racket file where you say, hey, go use these essentially compiler extensions if i can you if i can smudge the concept a little bit that's right the official grammar of racket is hash lang space some identifier and then the rest is up to that identifier mm-hmm. so that is indeed what i mean where different languages can have you know not only different semantics but different properties relating to their runtime systems and different interoperability constraints and abilities mm-hmm. yeah and this is the bit where you making the, maybe I'm reaching here, you can correct me if I'm wrong, where I would imagine that this is why it's been important for you to focus on some of the macro expander stuff, because I could well imagine that if you want to do that type of thing, you really have to be able to get, not everybody, but some people need to be able to get elbow deep into what the compiler is doing, and that the macro expansion system would need to be, at, at a minimum, easily understandable in order to enable that. I think that's probably true, yeah. I guess I'm not sure I would give myself enough credit for seeing things that way. It was more the macro expander was my my biggest problem at the moment, so that's what I went and worked on. I'm just making stuff up then. <laughs> cool, but I like it. All right, yeah, there you go. Right, you can. You're welcome to steal that, and please, right. please don't credit me because nobody would believe you. Um, 
Uh, so we were talking a bit about the trajectory of Racket uh, going forward, and you mentioned a couple things. Were there, are there kind of other significant things on the roadmap? Oh, well, I always say it's really the libraries are where they where it's at. And so I think Neil, Neil Toronto last year talked about his functional 3D library. Mm-hmm. And um, my son has been using that to, to make some games and just having a blast. So that is a, really makes uh, 3D... 3D interactive programming much more accessible that even I could help you know my son do it. Mostly it was a lesson to, to make the kind of game we wanted we had to sort of learn some 3D trigonometry I guess but uh, we didn't have to learn anything about OpenGL and all that. Uh, the library just takes care of it. So that's one example of cool libraries coming out. TypeTrack it is going to keep growing and being a, an important thing and and of course TypeRacket has been pretty influential in other languages. So I think maybe this isn't talking about Racket's future per se, but uh, when we do things in Racket, we often think about, okay, how do we make something that other people, other language implementations outside of Racket, how can they take advantage of it? And there's been some recent success there. You know, Vincent St. Amour's performance coach um, sounds like it's coming to a browser near you from Mozilla. So they've been working on a JavaScript performance coach and getting it integrated in with the browser tools. So that would be awesome. And uh, you know, Rust has hygienic macros. Uh, John Clements was involved with that. So I hope part of the future racket story is also when we have found some good ideas, seeing them permeate out. And, and uh, you know, both Vincent and John were involved in those other efforts. So uh, I hope anyone who's interested in picking up these things knows that they can contact us and we'd be more than happy to to help push those techniques, ideas, strategies, push them out into other places too. And, and I mean, this that's very, very cool. Is that, I'm just sitting here thinking you obviously have a lot of people who work on Racket who are also programming language uh, theorists, you, you know, so... It seems obvious, but I'll ask the question anyway. Is that why that's so common an attitude in the, the yeah, racket community? I, I think you're right. Uh, that is our funding and development model to to be at universities and publish papers about the things, and that very naturally makes us think about uh, how to make everything accessible to everyone else. And we're teachers, of course, at our universities, so we naturally think of trying to teach everyone else too. So, yes. Well, that's winning. <laughs> awesome. Well, we're sort of starting to draw down to the end of our allotted time. I don't want to uh, keep you too long, uh, but I also don't want to cut off this very, very interesting conversation. Um, I don't know if there's uh, anything else uh, that you think we should uh, talk about today. If there is, we should. Um, but if not, uh, so I was thrilled that you were available to talk with us again this year, and um, we will definitely have you back again to um, update us more on uh, the very exciting things that are going in RacketCon. But but again, before we go, we certainly can talk about anything else you think our listeners might be interested in uh, hearing about in the indie racket world, or really anything that you're um, that you're that you're involved in or aware of. I think we've covered it pretty well, and I'm going to defer to RacketCon to to tell everyone about all the the other interesting things going on. Uh, you know, show up for the talks and show up to to chat with us, uh, whatever you're interested in. Absolutely. I, well, like I said, I am, I am definitely going to be there. Everything's already booked, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and as you've said, I believe the, it was certainly true last year. I imagine it's true this year. The videos are going to be online. I'm not, not everybody is able to make it to, uh, to St. Louis for, uh, for RacketCon, but, uh, but those that can't, can, can I, I, am I right? They'll be able to see the videos at some point. That's right. Yes. Cool. Yep. cool. Excellent. 
All right, then. Well, this has been super fun. I do have um, one more question to ask you uh, before we before we call it a day. Um, and uh, <laughs> I warned you about this about ooh, 30 seconds before we started the show, but uh, hopefully you've got something in mind. The question we always close the show down on is we ask our guest to share with the audience a piece of advice, whether that's advice they've been given or advice they like to give or both or neither. Uh, what would you like to share with us? Well, maybe maybe this is a fine segue from talking about academia because uh, the piece of advice I have in mind at the moment is really kind of for faculty members or would-be faculty members, people who think they're interested in a career of research. But there's a rumor out there that if you're in uh, if you're in academia, then you write papers and you don't really have time to do software. That software is something that happens to grad students in in academia, and I think. Uh, I think we have an exaggerated sense of how hard it is to build software in, in academia and build software that people care about. So if there are people out there who think they're interested in an academic career but are frightened of the papers and the faculty meetings and the grant proposals and think they won't get to do what they really like, which is build software, I'd, I'd encourage you to take a closer look. So it worked for me. Uh, I admit I'm still kind of surprised. I figured I'd start in academia and they'd kick me out eventually, but it hasn't happened. And so uh, maybe it won't happen to you either. Uh, if that's your interest, then follow it and maybe help make academia better too. Awesome. Well, you're certainly doing a lot to help the uh, programmers of the world. and We certainly appreciate that. Uh, I, I certainly do. I mean, the cool ideas flowing out of you guys is is great and it's great that you're doing it in such a way that I can benefit from it even if I don't happen to have a job where I get to do um, racket on a daily basis um, that's very very cool and so thank you for that and also uh, thanks for taking the time today to come on the show you're obviously very busy but uh, it was super fun talking and we and we love the fact that you came down and, uh, and chatted with us for a while so thanks oh, it's always great I appreciate it oh not at all it was our pleasure um, but uh, but we do have to at some point end the episode and I think this is that point so Thank you once again, Matthew, and we will also thank our listeners. This has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitect. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art and show notes at our home on the web, cognitech.com slash podcast. You can contact us by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at cognitech.com. Our guest today was Matthew Flat. Best way to keep track of him on Twitter is to follow Racket Lang, at Racket Lang, R-A-C-K-E-T-L-A-N-G. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.